There's no nursery kids right now. That's what I mean. There's no kids for the nursery. Well, that's what scares Phil. He thought he might have a place he could go. How are you?
Good morning. Let's go over a couple of announcements. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. Philemon, verse 4. If you would like to send Dr. Ed a card, we have his address here up at Lost Lake Trail. Beautiful place. Uh, he is still mourning. Suzanne, and he will for a time. Uh, they had a very, very special and unique relationship, and uh, I think that sometimes catches up with him. So keep him in your prayers especially. Uh, we're taking offerings in the offering box again, and deacons are supposed to be recounting it. Uh, baby bottle campaign, uh, you see that uh, taking an offering for the center next Sunday, correct, Sheila? Mm -hmm. Okay. Andrea, of course, is a contact number for the prayer chain. Days of Praise booklets are here along with Acts and Facts. Well, one more thing that I'd like to uh, kind of like to do a little update on some of our members that aren't here. Uh, looking at our church praying, uh, Pastor Luca, of course, continues with dialysis. Uh, we discussed uh, Dr. Red as he mourns Suzanne. Does anybody have an update on Jerry Rathka? Uh, what's going on with her and yeah. Dale? Her yesterday, and she's uh, <clears throat> her hand is still sore and from the carpal tunnel thing. Charles got a heart monitor, and apparently their doctor said I asked her if she's going to be coming to church very soon. She said no. She said she doesn't think so. They're going to watch it on TV because. Right. Okay. That's the update I have. Yep. Uh, Mercy. Anybody have an update on Mercy? How she's doing? Has she had any recent relapses or anything like that? We were together yesterday, and um, she had a good day. She's been doing better. Um, she hasn't had a grand mal, I think, this week, maybe. It's been at least a week, I think, since her last grand mal, tonic clonic. But her new medicine seems to be doing better, but it's still scary medicine. Sure. Della? <clears throat> Ken, have you got an uh, update how Della's doing? Or? Does it seem to be at all positive for her, though, or is she sleeping better because of the CPAP? Or? Well, I've heard that, so.
Okay. Um, Brenda Roth, anybody have any news or updates on Brenda? Nobody since last Wednesday. We haven't seen them here for a while, so perhaps I would can prevail on one or two of you to give her a call, encourage her, and even Tom. I'll tell them we miss them and look forward to them getting better. So. Brenda doesn't drive, so she really is dependent on Tom. Right. And he's got his own problems with his knees and stuff. He's recovering from his surgery. Well, thank you for indulging me on uh, looking the people up. So our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 25, 15 through 25, and that's page 1754 in your pew Bible.
Would you stand with us as we begin our opening with prayer? Dale, would you lead us, please? Amen. Please remain standing. Take your red hymnals this morning, <clears throat> the Trinity, and turn to 590, 590 in the Trinity.
favorite hymn this morning? <clears throat> him, her, her, him. Do I get to pick? Oh, Dale's looking. There's no one back there, Dale. There, no one. No one has even thought of raising their hand. Do you? Ha you have one, don't you? <laughs> A good one. Do you, do you have the number? No, no, is it, I think it's in the brown. Battle Hymn of the Republic. 569 in the brown. Yep, 569 in the brown. You think? Could have a lot of them memorized, but I don't. <laughs>
If you'll once again stand with us as we do the scripture reading. It is the book of Philemon, 1860 and 1861 in the Pew Bible. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Afarius, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, 
and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, may you bless this holy inspired word to our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Take your red hymnal again and turn to number 
That's good. Our scripture text is the little book of Philemon. It's only one page in your Bible. Excuse me while I adjust this thing a little bit. Our last study analyzed Jesus' teaching on faithful children. We used the Matthew 18 text in which the disciples had been arguing among themselves as to who of them was the greatest in the kingdom of God. Can you believe that? That's what they were all concerned with. So Jesus had a little child in their midst and said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I thought about that and I thought, boy, that must have been a terrible shock to those disciples. I mean, here they are. They think they're in the kingdom. It's a done fact. They think everything's cool with it, with regard to them. But they're arguing among themselves and so forth. And Jesus says, no, you're not ready for the kingdom of God. Unless you change and become like a little child in terms of your faith and your innocence, you will, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I bet you that was so demoralizing. I think that probably shook them right to the core. I, I know it would me. We learn that God instructs parents to teach your children about him, which presupposes, guess what? Children can learn about God. Don't sell your kids short. In verse 6, Jesus affirmed that there were little children who believed in him, and he warned his disciples not to cause them to sin on peril of their own salvation. That's humbling. He's, he's saying, I'm siding with the kids against you guys. If you don't get your act together, you are the ones that are in jeopardy. Wow. We looked at some examples of believing children in the Bible, Samuel, young child, the servant girl in Naaman's household, the boy Joseph when he was a boy. And we concluded with the charge to believing children to obey your parents in all areas where they do not ask you to sin, and secondly, to honor your parents, that is to give them the due respect of their position and in authority over you. Today I want to talk of fidelity in one's vocation. How do we as believers in Christ conduct ourselves in the workaday world of our day? And Philemon is going to be our model. And interestingly, Paul wrote a whole book about this in addressing Philemon and his relationship to his servants. So as we come, let's ask for the Lord's enablement and enlightenment. Lord, we want to know what this text is about, and we want to be enlightened as to our personal responsibilities. I don't think any of us here own a business. Maybe Doug. He has people that work for him. 
but Lord, the the point being that we have interrelationships with one another, and there are masters or employers, and there are employees, and we need to learn how to function within the role that you set for us. And this little book has a lot to say about all of this. So I pray that you will help us, that you'll teach us of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest of servants, setting an example before us that the Lord of glory the Lord of glory actually took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient, the scripture says, all the way to the cross. You also taught that if that is what happened to the master, what's going to happen to the student? We're no better than the master. and We ought not to expect it to be different for us. So help us to believe and to function according to your word. And we want to grow in our grace and in uh, the knowledge of the Lord. We don't want to remain stagnant. We want to be able to mature. So I pray that you will use this time of study to add another inch of growth or whatever it takes uh, to bring us to good relationships with you and with one another. We'll praise you for the outcome in Christ's name. Amen. This little short series that I'm doing on uh, living a faithful life, I want to deal today with being faithful in one's vocation. And to do that, I'm worried in the book of Philemon, and I'm looking at the slave Onesimus. This little book, Philemon, contains about 25 verses, and it has a lot to say about the employer-employee relationship. But in biblical times, The relationship between Philemon and Onesimus was that of master and slave. Yes, you heard right. It may shock us to some degree to read in the Bible the truth that slavery existed in Christian estates. It was a cultural thing largely due to a world which knew nothing of what we call the middle class. They didn't have a middle class. Additionally, there was nothing known as a democracy. The culture of biblical days recognized but two classes of citizens, each one of them being at polar extremes. Rich or poor? There you go. Rich or poor? Master, slave. Aristocrat, peasant. All streams of the same thing. These were the two extremes, but more importantly, these were the only two categories known and recognized in the Greco-Roman world. What is more, apart from the Christianized culture of our day, much of the world is still divided up between the haves and the have-nots. There is no middle class in what we designate as the third world countries. Why is that? Well, where the gospel is preached and believed and put into practice, slavery and servitude 
cannot long exist. While the Bible does not come out directly and condemn slavery, it nevertheless lays down the principles of love and compassion and respect and equality of value for our fellow men, which are the seeds of destruction for slavery. And the promotion of what Lincoln spoke of in the Gettysburg Address, saying fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Our Christian President Lincoln speaking in the Gettysburg Address. 74 years earlier, William Wilberforce stood on the floor of the House of Commons in England's Parliament for the first time to oppose the slave trade in which England's merchants were heavily entrenched in order to provide cheap labor for their West Indies sugar plantations. Listen to his appeal. This is Wilberforce. He says, I wish exceedingly in the onset to guard both myself and the house from entering into the subject with any sort of passion. Now that's a good statement because he's saying, I'm not going to try to arm twist you and make you cry and weep and or mourn or anything like that. That's not what I'm about. He goes on. It is not their passions I shall appeal to. I ask only for their cool and impartial reason. And I wish not to take them by surprise, but to deliberate point by point upon every part of this question. I mean not to accuse anyone, but to take the shame upon myself in common, indeed with the whole Parliament of Great Britain, for having suffered this horrid trade, so we're talking about the slave trade, for suffered for this horrid trade to be carried on under their authority. He goes on, we are all guilty. We ought all to plead guilty. And not to exculpate ourselves by throwing the blame on others. And I therefore deprecate every kind of reflection against the various descriptions of people who are more immediately involved in this wretched business. What a wonderful statement. He's saying, I'm not going to just dump on the slave traders. Say, oh well, they did it, they did it, they did it. He's saying to the House of Commons, to the Parliament... No, we're all guilty, and more importantly saying, I'm guilty. I was there voting. I was there going right along with the flow. Five years earlier, Wilberforce had been converted to Christ, in part under the ministry of John Wesley. Yeah. His Christian objection to slavery was based on the biblical teaching that Acts 17, verse 26, From one man he, God, made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and determine the times and set for them the exact places where they should live. Acts 17, 26. Also the truth of Genesis 1, 26, where God said, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over the livestock over all the earth. 
and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So he, he said, I'm looking at the scriptures and it just says, all men were created by God and their positions was ordained by God. So what are we doing in this business of making some men slaves? On the council of John Newton, himself a former slave trader, then an ordained bishop, Wilberforce continued his fight against slavery for 20 long years. Would you stick with a a program, an argument for 20 years? Because you knew it was right, the right thing to do? Wow. Twenty years. Well, after many defeats in the House of Commons and just three days before he died, Parliament passed the Abolition of Slavery Act of 1833, some 30 years before Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. And by the way, our church was founded in 1843, so 10 years before our church came to be. See how close history is? It's wonderful when you think about it. John Wesley's last letter before his death was written to Wilberforce in 1791, and this is what he wrote. Now, the way they write back then is is very um, formal, very formal, very follow the rules. Dear Sir, would you write to your friend, Dear Sir? That's the way they wrote. Dear Sir, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy which now opposes the consists of the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. He's talking about slavery. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But, if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of (laughs) well-doing. Go on in the name of God, (coughs) excuse me, and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, I'm reading still, Even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. He's telling on our colonies. We were the worst propagators of slavery. But what he's doing, what Wesley is doing in this letter is saying to Wilberforce, continue on, continue on, don't give up. 
His letter goes on to say, Reading this morning a track where a poor African wrote, I was particularly struck by that circumstance that a man who has a black skin being wronged or outraged by a white man can have no redress. It being a law in our colonies that the oath of a black against a white goes for nothing. What kind of villainy is this? That he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and all things is the prayer of me, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. Boy, what if our politicians <laughs> got letters like that from the constituents? Now before us in today's study is another letter, also dealing with the subject of slavery. Yet Philemon is more than a letter, it is the inspired word of God from the beloved Apostle Paul writing to his friend in the name of the friend of sinners. And he writes as one brother in the faith to another brother in the faith and he writes about Onesimus, a new brother in the faith who is a runaway slave of Philemon. And this letter contains an appeal on the basis of Christian love and faith. Look at verse 4 and following. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Notice how Paul writes to Philemon. He talks about your faith, Philemon, verse 5. Your love, also verse 5. Your faith, again, verse 6. Your love, again, verse 7. And then verse 9, I appeal to you on the basis of love. This is not Paul pulling rank on Philemon. And he's not saying, I'm the boss, I'm the big apostle here. So you do what I say. He's, no, he's appealing to Philemon to think through what's going on in the house. Now how has Philemon expressed his faith in Christ? Look at verse 4. Paul says, your faith in the Lord Jesus. Though Philemon is a master, he acknowledges Jesus as his Lord. Verse 6 speaks of Paul's prayer that Philemon actively share his faith so that he might experience a 
full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. You see, this is a, a wonderful appeal. Oh, in one verse we didn't reference, verse 1, there was a house church meeting in Philemon and Aphia's home. This master then, or employer, is a true Christian at heart. His faith is not bogus. He is what we would call the genuine article. And yet, and yet, he's a slave owner. His estate operates on the mechanism of human souls, which he has bought and paid for. He owns them. They serve him with their work. This does not mean that Philemon was a cruel taskmaster. None of that. No, we know that he is not that because Paul repeatedly references his love. Verse 5, I hear about your love. For all the saints, writes Paul. Again, verse 7. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. And yet, the way this is worded, it might appear that Philemon is loving towards his fellow Christians, but kind of leaves room to question what he might be towards his slave employee, something different. If we jump ahead a bit, there's something we discover about Onesimus that is pertinent to the whole story. Look at verse 11. Paul admits to Philemon, Formerly he, Onesimus, was useless to you. Useless to you. How so? Verse 18. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it. To me. Hmm, that's an interesting thing to write in here. The Greek language has a number of classes, excuse me, a number of classes of if clauses. If. And if doesn't always indicate uncertainty or doubt. For example, Mark 4, verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, it's obvious. The word if is not expressing doubt, but is actually affirming a fact. If anyone has ears to hear, and we all have ears to hear, let him hear. That is, use your ears, excuse me, and listen up. So we, we speak that way at times. But then there are if clauses which do throw doubt or uncertainty on what's being said. For example, John 15, verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. If you belong to the world. So if here is a statement contrary to fact, if you belong to the world, but you don't belong to the world, why not? Because the next verse says, you do not belong to the world, I have chosen you out of the world. So you see how the word if is being used. This is the way we use the word if most of the time we speak. We express doubt or uncertainty. If it rains on Monday, the picnic is canceled. If it rains. Well, we don't know if it's going to rain, but if it does rain. 
Now the issue then for us in a text like Philemon here is to determine which way Paul is using the word if. When he writes to Philemon, if he is about Philemon, if he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Now, here it is. Is Paul saying, if Onesimus has wronged you or robbed you, but I doubt that he has. Or is Paul saying, if Onesimus has wronged you and robbed you, and I know he has, which is it? Well, you can't tell from the English. The English translation doesn't help us. But in the Greek text, Paul is affirming, not denying, that Onesimus has done these very things. The context supports this as well, because Paul goes on to say in verse 19, I will pay it back. Well, he must have done something. Against Philemon. For Paul to say, I'll pay it. So what we have here in Onesimus is a runaway slave. And when he ran away, he didn't run away empty-handed. No, he stole from Philemon. And he left his master with this bad taste in his mouth. Onesimus was an ungrateful slave who neither appreciated my kindness to him nor respected my property, but he stole from me when he left. That's the facts. In the film Les Mis, a novel by Victor Hugo, the peasant Jean Valjean was just released from prison after 19 years. Five for stealing bread for his starving sister and her family, and 14 more for numerous escape attempts. When he was caught each time, they added, slapped more sentence to him. But finally, upon being released, he is required to carry a yellow passport that marks him as a convict. Despite having already paid his debt to society, he has to carry this yellow passport around saying, I'm a convict, I'm a convict, I'm a convict. Rejected by innkeepers who do not want to take him in because he is a convict, Valjean sleeps on the street. This makes him even more angry. It makes him more bitter. However, the benevolent Bishop Myrel of Dijon takes him in and gives him shelter. And in the middle of the night, Valjean steals the bishop's silverware and runs away. Well, he didn't get very far. He's caught. He's about ready to be, go back into the slammer. But the bishop exonerates him by claiming that the silverware was a gift. And at that point, he gives him two silver candlesticks as well, chastening him in the hearing of the police for leaving in such a rush. Hey, you forgot these valuable candlestick holders. 
And the bishop then turns and reminds him of the promise which Falgene has no recollection of making, and that is to use the silver to make an honest man of yourself. In the film version, the words are, Remember you are no longer a thief. With this silver I have redeemed you. You are not your own. I have bought you a new life. Think about the gospel when you're reading something like that. And that's the point in a truer and more biblical sense. Paul is telling Philemon that Onesimus must now be viewed as a brother in the faith and not as a thief who stole from him. That'd be very hard, wouldn't it? Think about that. Verse 15, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. Wow. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And then he says in verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. What's going what's going on here? Philemon cannot love all the saints verse 4 and hate Onesimus. Just can't do that. He cannot have full understanding of every good thing in Christ, verse 6, and not grasp his obligation to forgive Onesimus his sin. He cannot refresh the hearts of the saints, verse 7, by his loving action, and then fail to love Paul in his requests and Onesimus in his repentance. Remember, that, brethren, the dynamic has changed. Onesimus must not be viewed any longer as a slave, as a thief, but as a brother in Christ and a member of the household of faith. That's what the gospel does. That's what it does. It makes villains into saints. And if Philemon does this, he will welcome Onesimus back as if he were welcoming Paul. That's Paul's point. He will adopt the very attitude of Paul towards Onesimus, which is this, verse 12. I am sending him back, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place, your so that he could be with me in my chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. What's Paul saying? He's saying to Philemon, you must act willingly in love as a Christian employer towards a Christian employee. Anything that, that happens with regard to Onesimus, you have to act towards him as a brother now. Not because me, the Apostle Paul, says you have to, but because you see there's been change and there's 
our responsibility here. And Onesimus, for his part, must come back repentant and contrite and useful to Philemon, and then, before he was a useless thief and an ingrate, all of that has to change. So it's win-win. You're getting back a guy that stole from you, but you're getting back a new guy. Marvelous change has taken place. All rivalry, all segregation must end. Christian love must prevail. Faith in God must result in practical and righteous outcomes. Can you not see, brethren, how this little book of Philemon is the shot heard round the world when it came to the death knell of slavery? God was declaring war on man's caste system, declaring freedom for all men in Christ, a truth most admirably expressed by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence where he said, We behold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with inherent and inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's the principles. Created equal, endowed by the creator with the right to liberty or freedom. No agnostic nation or government operates on this principle, which finds its roots alone in the teachings of Christ and the apostles. This brings us then to the subject of the Christian work ethic. The obligation of Christians, Christian employees, Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, slaves, we would say employees. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only when to win their favor, when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether it be he is a slave man or free. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. The principles here are this. Obey your earthly master, your boss, as you would your heavenly master. How do you do that? With respect and fear. Not everyone is going to have an earthly boss who is easy to get along with. Maybe you have one who, in your mind, is not worthy of your respect. He or she may epitomize the very things you despise. They may have a foul mouth and a couple along with a dirty mind. They may be one who blames others for his or her own mistakes. They may be a person who demeans or belittles employees, treating them worse than dirt. We've all had bosses like. And it's hard to respect such a person. We usually say something like, well, respect cannot be commanded, it has to be earned. What does the scripture say? Let me read it for you. Slaves, obey your masters with respect. That's a command. It's not optional. Paul's not making a suggestion. He is commanding us to respect the boss. 
How are we to do this in light of some of the things that I just mentioned? I mean, how do you respect someone whose values and actions are so diametrically opposed to Christ and the gospel that you advocate? Here's how you do it. You view him or her in terms of their position. Their position. Paul said something very similar to the Thessalonian church concerning their leaders. He wrote, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. We exhort you to esteem them very highly in love for what reason? Their work's sake. Their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. Their work's sake means their office. Their position of leadership, be they elder or pastor, whatever. It commands in a certain respect, even if you have a beef with them on some personal level. Think of your boss, whatever. Same holds true for any employer. Perhaps you are having personally a conflict with them. You just clash because of different values. Or you may not like your boss because of the way he conducts business. You think of him or her to be deceitful, pugnacious, two-faced. On we could go. How are you to respond? Well, you're to recognize what Paul wrote in Romans 13, verse 1 and following. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Romans 13, verse 1 and 2. A master over a slave is a boss over an employee in the position of authority. We respect them for their position and fear what might happen to us if we don't respect them. You don't have to like what, how they live or the way they think or the way they speak. And Paul is saying, look, God put them over you. They're in the position of authority. So you accept that and you work under that authority best you can. Oh, and I think there's another aid to help us render respect. You can see the boss in his or her true spiritual state. What's their true spiritual state? They're dead in sin and not alive to righteousness. So what do you expect? Let me read it for you. Gratifying the cravings of their sinful nature. Following its desires and thoughts. Ephesians 2 verse 3. What are the thoughts and actions of a sinful nature? Ephesians 4, 17 and following. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles too, as they do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. 
Boy, that's a pretty hard list when you think about it. Futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, devoid of God life in their soul, ignorant of spiritual truth, hard-hearted towards God and the gospel, sold out to sensuality, living a hedonistic lifestyle, possessing an insatiable appetite for more, for more, for more. Their fist in the face of God. And we're supposed to love a person like that. And we're supposed to obey a person like that if they're over us. Wow. What if the leader is caught embezzling union funds? What of the boss who's using his position as a womanizer? It's hard to respect a person like that. It is. But as Christians, we can pity the man in this. He's a slave to sin. Duped by the evil one. Product of self-indulgence and lust. Captive of the devil. Surely as, he, as if he were locked in a dungeon with chains. That's the truth, morally. Paul told Timothy that when people opposed him, he should gently instruct them, here's Paul's words, so that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, verse 26. Have you ever thought of that in reference to how people treat you when they're evil towards you? They're captive to the devil's will. Secondly, the obedience we render to to them is to be with sincerity of heart, verse 5, as unto Christ. The obedience is not to win brownie points when the boss is watching you, verse 6, not just to look good from the heart, verse 7, but serving wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever he could, good that he does, whether he is slave or free. Okay, so you were passed over in the promotion at work. So you didn't get the raise you expected. So you have to take a day cut in pay because the company is hurting economically. What do you do now? You slough off at work? Do you abuse your break time by extending it? Do you steal office supplies or equipment? That's the world talking. That's the devil's solution. As Christians, your job may be to fasten parts onto a Ford or a motor car from GM, but your vocation, here's the point, your vocation is to serve Christ. It's different. The word vocation comes from the Latin vocativus, meaning a summons or a calling, a voice, particularly a divine call to the religious life. It's God's summons to you to serve him in what you do. Here's the distinction. Your job is how you make money to support your family. Your vocation is to represent Christ and godly principles in the work-a-day world. See the distinction? 
Peter put it this way. 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Living such good lives among the pagans. That though they accuse you of doing wrong. They may see what? Your good deeds. And glorify God on the day he visits us. 1 Peter 2 verse 12. That's Christian employees. But there's an obligation for Christian employers or masters. Verse 9. And masters, so you can see he's moving right along. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Well, in what same way? Verse 8. You know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. So the Bible endorses reward for good behavior and good performance. A faithful, hardworking employee is a valuable asset. And sadly, in today's economy, the push is on for cheap labor. Not necessarily quality labor. Companies are dumping, dumping rather, the experience, the knowledgeable for the newbie. The newbie will work for peanuts, but has no competent work ethic. Do we not hear reports on occasion about the sweatshops in places like India and China and other non-Christian nations whose supervisors extract blood, sweat, and tears from their employees, paying them little, demanding much, and growing rich off the suffering of those that they hire? This ought not to be in any company, but especially among Christian employers. I have to say, and I'm not referring to any church, including ours, but I have to say that in my tent-making employment through the years, the worst employers I had were professing Christians. That might shock you. It was almost as though, because they knew I was a believer, they felt they did not have to be as diligent in pay raises, in promotions, or to avoid taking advantage of a brother who they just expected to work, 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 above and beyond the call of duty. They kind of took the position that they were doing me a favor to hire me. Well, our text warns against favoritism, verse 9. And it also alerts us to the fact that all earthly bosses and their Christian employees have a master in heaven to which they must give an account. Wow. And Paul says that, Colossians 4, verse 1 and following. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Peter summarizes, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. First Peter 2, verse 16 and 17. It's a wide perspective there. And I think Paul shows the balance. Paul writes, for he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's free man. Okay. 
Similarly, similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 22. Well, that's very interesting. I'm a slave of Christ, but I was a free man before. Long and short of it is that our vocational calling, every believer is bound by God to live for him in such a way as to magnify his glory and love the brethren. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Galatians 5, verse 13. That's the Christian work ethic. In a nutshell. So may God so equip us to magnify him in this wicked world. Be loyal, respectful employees, and to have our great service to the saints be caring employers and managers if God has put you in that position. It's a two-way street. There's so much greed in our culture today. So much me first, me first, me first. I'm sick of it. I've had it up to here. I'm sure many of you have had as well. Everybody's hand is out and saying, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And if I don't see enough in it for me, I'm out of here. And that's how they conduct their lives. Not knowing, not knowing or not recognizing that 90% of the world functions in abject poverty. The third world countries and so forth. And they're everywhere. They're not getting a minimum wage of $8 an hour or whatever it is, 12 I don't even know what the minimum wage is nowadays. But it's, I guarantee you, probably three, four times more than the rest of the world is making. Would you say that was right, George? Do you know what the minimum wage is? Is it now? Is it 11 or $12? I think it's 12 Unbelievable. And we're so blessed. But people still have their hands out. What's in it for me? I'm glad the God of heaven did not say. What's in it for me? When he sent his only beloved son. On the auction block. To give his life. For the sins of his people. That he might redeem them back. Buy them back to himself out of the devil's coffers. Praise the Lord. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the grace of the gospel. We have this little book, Philemon. It's a wonderful little book. It's a picture of how God deals with those that are enslaved by sin. who had a good master, yet he stole Philemon. He, he, he was, Onesimus stole from him the man that treated him so well. Lord, that's the bitterness of our hearts. That's the uh, blackness of our heart. 
We have a good and gracious God and creator. But we've thumbed our nose at him and shake our fist in the face of God. And we've defied you. Believing that we were at all times justified in doing so. Please forgive us. And help us to see the wonderful, wonderful truths of this little book of Philemon. That like a a slave that stole. Philemon is charged to be merciful and gracious on the basis of love. Help us to love the brethren, one another, in ways that will even amaze us. Help us to have an outgoing heart. If we don't have money to spare to help one another, we can be prayerful. We can be helpful in many other ways. Give us that kind of caring heart. Open our eyes to see where people are hurting and where they need the care of God's saints. Sometimes we're living in our own little world. We don't see past the threshold of our own household. We don't look out the window. We just live in our little own cocoon, safe and sound. But everywhere in our culture, there are people that are hurting. And in the church, people that need our prayers and support, our love and our understanding, our camaraderie. Lord, we need it all. And only your grace can supply that for us. We're selfish by nature. So please deal with the sin of our selfishness and give us giving, loving hearts. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 585. a wonderful little hymn. I remember singing this a lot of times as children and it was used in children's programs but I I think that's a perhaps a misrepresentation of how to use the hymn. It's talking about us all. Take my life and let it be consecrated to the Lord. Not just for children but for adults as well. You can stand with me as we sing. Thank you.
It's a wonderful hymn of surrender. We all think of our lives as it's my life to live. I can live it the way I want to live. But that hymn is saying to the Lord, take all that I am, my skills, my abilities, my reasoning ability, my physical health, whatever it is, and use it for yourself. Use it for you. You're never at a loss when you do that. You're blessed when you do that. The Lord will not be beholden any man or woman. Whatever we surrender to him, he pays back 20-fold, 100-fold, 10-fold. Jesus talks about that. Can't outgive God. So think about that in all aspects of your life. Think of ways in which you can use your life to serve the Lord. Philemon was in a position where he could do great work for his household. But he had to have a right attitude. And Paul keeps coming back to the theme. Love. Love Onesimus. This guy cheated you. He robbed you. But he's a brother. Love him. Forgive him. It's a great way to live. It's the only way to live for us as Christians. I've heard Christians say, I'll never forgive you for what you did. Well, if that's you, there's no love in your life. And what you dish out, Matthew 7, you're going to receive. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that your blessing be upon us. Help us to live out the truth of the gospel. Not just to mouth it, but to live it out in very practical ways. We thank you, Lord, that you put this little book of Philemon in the Bible. It reminds us all things were not just wonderful back in Bible days. There was such a thing as slavery. There was such a thing as people owning others. There was such a thing as cat the caste system the haves and the have nots and it wasn't equitable but Lord in your grace through the gospel you took a person like Onesimus and you made him a saint a brother in Christ and you took Philemon the master and charged him to love and receive this one-time thief and forgive him. It's a wonderful lesson to us. Can we not forgive one another the slights and the wrongs that we do to one another? A lot of times it's just things we don't even know about that we did. So help us to be aware of the love of Christ and of his forgiving spirit. May it be a part of our spirit for we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory and our good. Amen. We are dismissed. Hey, Dan, can I get you to move your chair back and sit down for a second? I need to fix the microphone, because on the video, it, it's right at your forehead. <laughs> so I keep
keep forgetting before we sit. But will you sit? No, will you sit down though, so I can look at it? Sit down in your chair. Sure. Test, test, test. Test, test, test. Can you hear me? 